Amen. Good morning. Merry belated Christmas. Happy early New Year. In fact, happy early decade, which is kind of crazy to say. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Roman Wally, and I have the privilege of being the college pastor here at Grace, as well as leading our training program called the Servant Leader Training. That's where we go through the narrative of the Bible, and we go through basic Christian doctrine. If you have any questions about that, I'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, But this morning finds us in sort of a transition. Uh, We just wrapped up four Sundays looking at the servant songs of Isaiah. Brent, our senior pastor, led us through four different passages from Isaiah, all poetic prophecies pointing forward to the servant of the Lord who would come to rescue God's people, to reclaim God's world. The last sermon in that series last week was Isaiah 53, where we heard about the suffering of that servant, that in laying down his life, he would rescue God's people from their sins, the suffering of the servant. And Brent clearly and very well pointed us to Christ all the way through that passage, how he is that servant. His suffering rescues God's people. And at next week, what we'll do is we'll go through the Gospel of John. We'll begin a journey going through the story of Jesus as told by John. So I find myself between the suffering of the servant and the story of Jesus. And what I want to do this morning is look at suffering. I want to look at suffering and see that God conquers evil through suffering love. From the beginning of the story of Scripture all the way to the story of our everyday lives, God conquers evil through suffering love. This isn't something that's new in the story of Jesus. It's not something that's new even in the prophecies of Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus. This is something that's been true from the beginning of the world. Now, as we uh, get started this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to actually look at the theme going through Scripture. We're not going to just focus on one particular text. And what I hope in that is really two things. One, that you would grow in a greater comprehension of just the story of the Bible, that you would walk away with a better understanding, a clearer picture of what God has been doing throughout Scripture, throughout history. But more than that, what I hope God would do for all of us is that he would transform our view of suffering. Because as human beings, we naturally try to avoid pain and maximize pleasure. Suffering is not a fun thing. We don't enjoy it. And so we tend to view it naturally as something to avoid or get out of as quickly as possible. Something that negatively invades our lives, ruins our plans, makes us feel terrible. So we want to avoid it. We want to get out of it quickly. But Suffering is not something merely to avoid. It's not something merely to try to get out of as quickly as possible. It is something to be entrusted to God, that he might work victory through it. We need our view of suffering to be transformed. If it's not, we run a risk. In instances of suffering that maybe aren't all that serious, in the grand big picture of life, we might step back and say, okay, well, this wasn't really that big of a deal, but it is a problem in the moment. If we don't have a Christ-centered view of suffering in those moments, 
we run the risk of becoming whiny complainers. Life didn't work out the way that I wanted it to. Things are harder than I thought they would be. And for many of us, we just can't help but express that. We run the risk of being whiny complainers. And in other situations, we run the risk of in the midst of difficult suffering, in the midst of the dark night of the soul, in the midst of times where you have no clue what to do next. There's no minimizing suffering in those cases. In those situations, we run the risk of becoming people embittered in soul, people who distrust God, who don't love our neighbors as ourselves, who withdraw and look inwards and become crusty, angry, unloving people focused inwardly. We need a Christ-centered view of suffering. God conquers evil through suffering love. We're going to see that from the beginning of the story of Scripture all the way through forward to the story of our lives. We're going to pick it up first in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you brought one with you, if you need one from the pew back in front of you, grab your Bible out and open up to Genesis chapter 3. You always want to be looking at the Word of God right before you when somebody speaks it to you. Don't take it uh, just on confidence that our Word is authoritative. God's Word is authoritative. Genesis 3 chapter, or I'm sorry, chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. I'm going to give you a little bit of background setup as we get into that text. So in Genesis chapter 1, God's goal was to rule the world through humans. But in Genesis, the beginning of Genesis 3, the serpent comes in and enslaves humans as they rebel against God. So in Genesis 1, God creates this beautiful, abundant, good world. He delights it to bless it, cause it to flourish, and he creates humans in his image as his representatives to rule over the world. This is how God has set up his kingdom, to rule through humans. And humans were never meant to rule independently from God. They were always to submit to God and trust in his character. They were to obey the limitations that he says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's bad for you. The day you eat of it, you will die. God is the one who not only creates good, he provides good, he defines good. And so humans are to obey his limitations. Right? As they rule, they rule in submission and trust to God. But when the snake slithers into the scene, he tempts humans to distrust God, to disobey his command, and the humans take and eat of the fruit that God forbade. Now humans who were made to rule over the creatures, including the snake, now they are enslaved to the snake. Now the good world that God made to flourish is now corrupted by sin. And in Genesis 3, God, the righteous judge, enters the garden. What will he do? In verses 14 and 15, we're going to see that God promises to conquer evil through a suffering snake crusher from Eve. Let's pick it up in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you've tempted humans, you've led them astray in rebellion against me. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity, that is conflict, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a rich text. Two main things I want us to focus on, victory and suffering. First, victory. God promises to conquer evil. The evil snake who hates God, who contradicts the word of God, who leads humans to rebel against God, he will be defeated. Look at verse 15. He says, the offspring of Eve shall bruise your head, shall strike your head. A blow to the head is a fatal blow. This is a promise that evil will have its day. Evil will be defeated. The story of the Bible is not a dualistic story of good versus an equal evil, always in eternal conflict. The story of the Bible is about a good eternal God who responds to rebels in both righteousness and love, and evil will be defeated. This is the victory God promises. Now, in Genesis 3, the snake, we don't get a whole lot of information about him. Um, A lot of people will ask, well, where did he come from? How is he speaking? None of these questions are answered by the author. And if you read your Bible, you actually see through the rest of the Bible, animals don't talk very often. Uh, So this is an outlier. But when we read Genesis 3 in the context of Scripture as a whole, we'll see that behind this evil snake is the head of all evil forces. It's Satan himself. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, the revelator, John, calls Satan the evil ancient serpent. Reference back to Genesis 3. Behind the snake is the head of all evil. And God promises that he will be defeated. If you take a look at verse 15, again, this is a a war that will continue. It's not just between Eve and the snake. It's also between their offspring, The offspring of Satan is the forces of evil, generally speaking, all those opposed to God and to God's people. Spiritual demons and then humans who refuse to repent, who are continually opposed to God. That offspring will be defeated with the snake in the final day. This is a promise of victory. And yet, that victory can only come through suffering. Evil will be conquered by a suffering snake crusher from Eve. Look at verse 15 again. He says, This offspring shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The picture is of a man stomping the head of the serpent, and as he stomps, the serpent is ready. The snake is ready and strikes his heel as he stomps him. The point is this. If human rebellion is to be dealt with, if evil is to be defeated, it is will only come through the suffering of the snake crusher. That's the only way victory is to be had. That's the only way salvation is to be granted, is through the suffering of a snake crusher. This is the righteous love of God. God is perfectly just and abundantly, ridiculously loving. He judges sin and evil while at the same time promising salvation for humanity. When God entered into the garden, he's not obligated to speak anything but judgment to these human rebels. It is the undeserved, initiating, 
overflowing love of God to not only promise the defeat of evil, but the rescue, the reconciliation of human rebels. God promises to conquer evil through the suffering snake crusher from Eve. This is an ancient promise here in Genesis. We're going to turn now to look at how this is fulfilled in Christ. Would you flip on over to John chapter 12? John chapter 12. I'm taking us to John because, like I said, Brent will be leading us through the Gospel of John soon. And I want us to be reading the Gospel of John with these lens. So we looked at the what, how God promised that he would conquer evil through suffering love. And yet, here we see how he's going to do that. God conquered evil through Jesus' suffering and death. We're going to pick it up in John chapter 12, looking at verses 31 through 33. This is the part of John's gospel where the, the focus shifts. Jesus has been ministering in public. He has been casting out demons. He's been healing the sick. He's been feeding the poor. He has been loving the sinner and forgiving them, cleansing the unclean. This is the victorious mission of Christ. And here the focus now shifts from the public ministry to his crucifixion and his death. And we'll see that in Jesus' words. Pick it up in verse 31 with me. Jesus says, Now, this stage in my mission is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, the narrator says. Jesus is clearly here speaking of his suffering and his death. You can see that whenever he talks about in verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth. This is a reference to his physically being lifted up on the cross from the earth. And just to make sure that we get the point, John, as the narrator in verse 33, makes that clear. He's speaking of the manner of his death here. He's lifted up on the cross. It's in his suffering death on the cross that Jesus climaxes his victorious mission. Jesus came to defeat evil and reclaim God's world. God was not abandoning his creation in Genesis 3. He set out a rescue plan right from the get-go through a serpent crusher who would suffer to rescue his world and to defeat evil. And Jesus here is saying, it's happening now. Through my crucifixion. This is the climax of his mission. We see Jesus understands this in, in terms of victory in several different ways. Take a look at verse 31. He says, now is the judgment of this world. In the gospel of John, that word world is not referring to the physical creation around us like we might talk about the world. In the gospel of John, world refers to the collective world of sinful humans. Sinful humans in rebellion against God. That's the world. There is judgment on the world. Sinful humans are in rebellion against the Creator King, and justice will be served. And yet, Jesus understands his crucifixion, his shaming death on a Roman cross, to be the judgment of this world. And the great mercy of God, God's just wrath towards human sin is poured out on His Son, on the King. He absorbs the penalty 
for human sin. He defeats human sin on the cross. This is a part of the victory of our King. Now, is the judgment of this world, look at verse 31 again. When he pays for sin, he says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That phrase, ruler of this world, is used several times through the Gospel of John. This is the third out of three. The other two times, he is referring to Satan. And again, here he is referring to Satan as the ruler of this world. How could that be? How could Satan be the ruler of this world? If we go back to Genesis 3, we remember the serpent led human rulers astray. He led them into rebellion against God. And in so doing, they became slaves of sin, slaves of the snake. This has been ongoing through human history. Satan has legitimate authority over a sinful human world. Jesus fully recognizes it. If you think to the other Gospels, whenever Jesus is tempted in the desert, one of the temptations Satan gives him is, look at all around you. I have the kingdoms of the world. I will give them to you if you'll just bow the knee. Jesus doesn't disagree with him. It's true. He is the ruler of this world, and yet his rule is limited. He will be cast out. That word there in verse 31, the ruler of this world will be cast out, is the same word used in the Gospels whenever Jesus exercises a demon. I'm not talking about going on a jog. I'm exercise with an O, casting out a demon. Um, Literally, what Jesus is saying is that his death on the cross is an exorcism of Satan. Satan's tyranny is broken. His power over this sinful world is no longer ultimate. You see, Satan is like a a drug lord. Um, Drug lords will, will often function in this way where they will give their product, drugs, to somebody uh, to get them hooked. And then that person then, as they get hooked, will come back to that drug lord and will continue buying drugs for them. And that fosters this vicious cycle, this vicious cycle where their addiction increases, so they're enslaved. And then they get to the point where they can't pay for it anymore, and so they rack up this debt to that drug lord. Who's glad to continue to provide to them his product, so that they stay needy, they rack up debt, he has authority over them. The only thing that will change that vicious cycle is if that addiction is broken and if that debt is paid. Satan is like a drug lord. He lured humans into sin, into rebellion against God. All of humanity became sinful and repeatedly follows the lies of the snake rebelling against God, sinning against God, racking up a debt, not to Satan, but to God, condemned by God, alienated by God, and Satan is able to manipulate and control sinful humans at his pleasure. And you might think, people do what they want. Yeah, and what they want is corruption and rebellion against God. That's the natural overflow of the human heart, and it pleases our enemy. And yet, in his death on the cross, when he pays the penalty for sin, Satan's claws are shattered from those whom he enslaved before. Those who would come to the king in faith find freedom. The ruler of this world is cast out. Christ's death on the cross is not a defeat. It's a victory. 
Sin is paid for. The tyranny of sin is broken. And now look at the result. Verse 32. Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. Jews, non-Jews, all humanity alienated from God can now be reconciled to their God. This is the hope of the whole story of the Bible. That human image bearers who were in rebellion against God might once more be reconciled to him. That they would live in trusting relationship with him and in the end be restored to rule over the earth. This is the victory of Christ. This is the righteous love of God. Jesus gives life to sinful rebels by giving up his own life. Christ endures the greatest weapon that Satan has, which is a shaming death. The Roman crucifixion was meticulously crafted to produce fear in the public, to shame the criminal who was being punished if they were a criminal, and to maximize suffering for days sometimes, hanging naked in the sun, dying slowly. And it is by this means that Jesus defeats Satan. He takes his own weapon and turns it to his defeat. We are the undeserving rebels. We are those who rejected God and deserve nothing but judgment. And he initiated towards us and this one who laid down his life that we might have our sins paid for, we might be freed from enslavement to Satan, and that we might find freedom in relationship with God. Praise our King. As we see that Jesus established God's victory over evil, we need to recognize that we also are involved in this. We are called to follow our King by advancing God's victory as well. As we look now, we're going to see that we're called to follow Jesus by advancing God's victory over evil through suffering love. The same path our king walked is the same path that we're called to walk. I want to show you the what. I want to show you that I'm not just making this up by looking at Romans 16. So if you would flip on over to Romans 16, verse 20. Romans 16, verse 20. This is where we're going to see that Jesus' followers join in conquering evil. This is obviously the end of Paul's epistle to the Romans. They're uh, having the potential threat of heretics inspired by Satan, but Paul's not concerned. He's confident that the Roman church will overcome. And so this is what he says in verse 20 of Romans chapter 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under y'all's feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I'm still waiting for Hobby Lobby to put this one up on like a cool looking plaque. This is like one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Um, This is clearly an application of Genesis 3.15, the promise that we saw all the way back at the beginning of the story that God promises to conquer evil through a suffering snake crusher. And yet, Paul doesn't apply it here specifically to Jesus. He applies it to the Roman church. They will conquer evil. God will conquer evil under their feet. This is helpful for us because it reminds us 
we're not merely passive recipients of God's victory. The Christian life is not to be one of a spiritual couch potato. We are made active participants in God's war on evil. We're called to follow our king who conquered by engaging in this war alongside him. This is something where the decisive battle has been won by our king. He will complete it in the final day. And in between, we're called to join him and advance the victory of God over evil. That sounds really cool, right? What does that even mean? What does that look like? I'm going to show you, and it might be where things get a little bit uncomfortable, okay? Um, but we're in this together, and our God is gracious to strengthen us. Would you flip on over to Romans chapter 12? We're going to look at how Jesus' followers conquer evil. How? Through a love that endures suffering. We're going to look at Romans 12, 9 through 21. This is going to be a string of different commands that Paul gives. You're going to notice uh, that Paul has commands to love within the church and to love those outside the church. There's going to be both of those present. So we're going to want to pay attention to that. We're looking at principles for a love that endures suffering. Okay, Let's pick it up in verse 9 in chapter 12 of Romans. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome or conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. It's another one of my favorites. I love that one. This is how Jesus' followers conquer evil. Through a love that endures in the face of suffering. What we're going to do is just take some principles for what it looks like to live out a love that endures suffering. I've given you four bullet points in your, in your outline uh, and I would encourage you to follow along and, and take some notes on the verses as we go because I'm not going to be able to go through a lot of detail here. Um, I think my first one is about growing in love within the church. We're going to come back to that at the end. So the first one we're going to look at is doing everything to make peace. 
That's our first point. Do everything to make peace. You can write verse 18 out beside this point. Verse 18 is where Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There's a lot there. It's such a great verse. Uh, But the, the main point here being, we're called to do everything in our power to make peace. Now, I want to make a distinction. There's a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Uh, In our culture, peacekeeping is very common. This is where conflict is avoided uh, so that the appearance of peace can be kept. So if you've ever been in a relationship where you know something's off, but nobody really wants to talk about it, and so you just kind of walk on eggshells and try to pretend, it's all great, we're all good, it's peacekeeping. And this is not the way of Christ. We're called to be peacemakers. Making peace, peacemaking, is addressing the conflict head-on for the goal of forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what it looks like to make peace, to address conflict head-on with the goal of forgiveness and reconciliation. We're called to do everything in our power to make peace. Now, clearly, if you look at verse 18, Paul understands that's not going to be possible in every case, if possible, so far as it depends on you. He understands this is a two-way street, so if the other party is unwilling to reconcile, if they're unwilling to take part in working towards healing, you can't control that. But as followers of Jesus, we make sure that we've done everything we can to make peace. This is where things get a little bit uncomfortable and convicting for me uh, because of what I've noticed in my life is as I approach conflict, I can, I can approach it like a chess game, right, where I just want to move my pawn one square. I want to do the minimal amount that I can do to put the ball in the other person's court, right? I want to give the minimal amount so that way I can step back and say, it's their move. We'll see what they do. And until then, I'll just try to forget about it. And that is not the way of Jesus. As he initiated, as he pursued guilty rebels, we are called to do everything we can to make peace. The question is not, have I done the minimal amount in order to put the ball in their court? The question is, have I done everything I can to make peace right now? We're called to do everything to make peace. Secondly, we're called to trust in God's ultimate judgment. You can write verses 17 and 19 beside this point. Verses 17 and 19, I won't read those, I'll let you read those later. We're called to trust in God's ultimate judgment. Here's why. In this life, we will suffer wrongs that we will not see be made right. There will be people who wrong us who will never repent, who will never even give a half-hearted sorry. And we'll have to carry that. There's going to be wrongs that even if they're apologized for, even if the person repents of, that's still the scars there. And that's why, as those who trust in a just, righteous judge, we can entrust our pains and we can entrust our injustices into the hands of the one who will make all wrongs right in the end. We are never called 
as followers of Jesus to fight fire with fire. When we fight fire with fire, it makes a bigger fire. That tends to be what happens, right? And as you make a bigger fire, you get burned. We are called to take the path of suffering love, entrusting judgment into the hands of God so that we might turn to love our enemy. That's the way of Christ. Next, we're called to pray and act for the best interest of our enemy. You can write verses 14 and then 20 to 21 beside this point. Pray and act for the best interest of your enemy. Jesus has called us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. That's the language that Paul is echoing here in Romans 12. Love isn't just a fuzzy feeling towards somebody who mistreats you. Love is seeking the best interest of somebody who's opposed to you. Jesus calls us to love our enemy. Prayer and action need to be united if we're going to love our enemy. Right? In prayer, we before God ask for God's mercy, His grace, His blessing on the one who's wronged us. We ask God to lead them in ways that are right for them. And as we do that, God changes our hearts so that indeed we can actually love that person genuinely instead of just trying to keep a smile on and say nice things. We can genuinely want their best because we've prayed for them. So if we step back, all those things, doing everything to make peace, trusting in God's ultimate judgment, praying and acting for the best of our enemies, this isn't just something we do as a once and done in an isolated circumstance. The goal here is to be the kind of people who, like Jesus, naturally love their enemies. And that is not natural to us, right? Can I get an amen if I'm going to get an amen in this one? Right? So God knows that, and by his mercy, he's made us a part of the church. And by church, I don't mean an hour on Sunday. By church, I mean the community of God's people who live life together. We are made a part of the church so that we might grow in enduring love as we love one another. So that's our our final point here. You can write verses 9 through 13 and 15 through 16 here. We grow in enduring love within the church. This is why Paul mixes love for people within and without the church together. We become the kind of people who love our enemies as we love one another. As we grow in a lifestyle of putting each other's interests before our own, we grow to become the kind of people who respond with blessing instead of cursing, who pray instead of stew in bitterness, who creatively seek to think of good things to do instead of thinking of ways our enemy might stumble and fall. Look at verse 21, one last time. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is how God conquers evil in the lives of his people. Every act of forgiveness that is genuine, every prayer for an enemy, every gracious response to hatred, every act of undeserved generosity and compassion is a stomp on the snake. This is how we smash the enemy. It's through a love that endures suffering. This is how God conquers evil. 
This is how we advance the victory of Christ over Satan. Life in this world is dark. We will go through dark times. People will mistreat us. And yet, as the Gospel of John reminds us in chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome him. And his name is Jesus, our King. Next steps. Practically, some things to think about putting into practice as our band comes up. Uh, These aren't written in your bulletin, so you might want to write them down yourself. Two things. I would encourage you to spend some time meditating on Romans 12, 9 through 21. Uh, We didn't get to go through that in a whole lot of detail. It's a good place to spend some time reflecting and praying. Here's one question for you to consider as you do. As you're in Romans 12, 9 through 21, ask God, how do I need to grow in enduring love within the church? How would the Lord have you grow in practical daily love in this body, in this community, not just on Sunday mornings, but as a lifestyle? How would have you grow in that? And then secondly, as you're meditating on Romans 12, 9 through 21, Who is God calling me to love regardless of the cost? Who is God calling me to love regardless of the cost? And what does it look like to take the first step? God is so good that as we meditate on his word and as we ask him questions like this, lay ourselves bare, he's faithful to lead us and to guide us.